uh, would you be averse to me throwing out to you some Canadian trivia as we go along? I have I opened up a, a Canadian trivia quiz, and I, I want to uh, see how, cl- <laughs> how mean, good you are. I haven't lived there for twenty years. But we can talk about it. Absolutely. Whatever. Your blood is Canadian. Your heart is American. Well, I'll allow it. Uh, <laughs> but no, I also right. don't want to throw out questions, and I don't want you to feel like, uh oh, now I look dumb because I didn't know these answers. I'm talking to you too. I couldn't look any dumber by comparison. Oh snap! All right, and we are off and running. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another patrons, aka bonus episode of '80s All Over. I am co-host Scott Weinberg, and as always, I am joined by my wonderful co-host, Mr. Drew McWeeny. Hello, Drew. Hi, how you doing, man? How's life going with you in general? Uh, good. I am excited uh, about today. Uh, Me too. Uh, yesterday is... was well. Yesterday was Canada Day, 2018, yep. right? And uh, it just seemed to be fortuitous timing. But this bonus episode is going to be a 90-minute conversation with somebody who is a a great friend of ours, b a former film critic of of high skill and repute, and c currently an educator. In California, let's welcome the wonderful Canadian-born James Rocky. Hey, Scott, Drew, and of course, Bobby in the booth. Very much a pleasure to be here the day after Canada Day. I'm just sorry if this uh, throws off your regular recording schedule. (laughs) It is in full force. Um, James, uh, one of the things that we – one of the experiences that the three of us shared was the Toronto film festival, uh, several times. And, um, I miss seeing you on the festival circuit, frankly, sir. Um, you are always a great, great movie companion, um, and, uh, knowledgeable and erudite. So it is good to have you here for maybe the silliest film we've done a commentary for so far. I have to say to you two, how much it, you three, how much I be- pleasure I've been getting from not merely the knowledge, but also the clear and cogent engineering of 80s all over. And I, I did a little bit of Thank research you, so we could talk about some 80s all over deep cuts revolving, <laughs> revolving specifically around the economy of Toronto and my home city of Hamilton as shooting locations for not just Strange Brew, but a variety of other uh, dentist money tax dodges that define Canadian cinema in the 80s. This is oh, great. wonderful. This is going to be great. We got, I got some notes here, some curveballs. But before we begin, we want to do two different things. A, thank you if you're listening to this episode because that means you are a cash money supporter of our show and you have more than earned your bi-weekly bonus episode. So we hope you enjoy this one. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Drew, would you also like to thank them or not? Uh, no, I have no thanks. No thanks in my heart. I am just angry all the time. Um, yeah, all right. Why don't you cue everybody up? Tell them how to get rolling. All right. So we're going to go ahead and we're going to start the movie. And uh, if you know the film, the first thing you're going to see is going to be the MGM Lion. So I'm going to call three, two, one. You should hit play and the MGM Lion should come up drunk in all his glory. All right. Three, two, one, play. All right. Now, my experience with this film, uh, Drew, uh, let's let's run through ours real briefly. And then let's let's have James, who was a, is and was a Canadian citizen at the time. Uh, he's now he's now dual citizenship. He is an American. Uh, but um, I, I knew nothing of Bob and Doug McKenzie. 
I, I can't remember if Take Off, which was a novelty hit single, I honestly can't remember if that was big first or if the movie was big first, but I barely knew SCTV at this stage in my life at 12 or 13, but I was in love with Strange Brew, and I think part of it is it was weird. I didn't get a third of the jokes. The, like, it's looked American. It's kind of sounded American. But a lot of the jokes, just I was like, oh, that must be a Canadian superstar. That must be a Canadian restaurant. I just and, – and that that alien aspect that I could still grasp was really fun for me. So I, I, I've grown up really enamored with this movie, and I'm glad we're covering it. Drew, you hate it, right? I was a, I was a big Bob and Doug fan already and a big SCTV fan. And I would videotape every Saturday night, uh, Saturday night live and SCTV back to back and then get up and watch them. And I had one friend in my scout troop in particular who was also fanatical about Bob and Doug McKenzie. And we would drive everybody else in the boy scout troop crazy doing impressions of them well before the movie. So when the movie finally came out, we felt vindicated and then it tanked. So, Clearly, everybody else felt vindicated. But, um, yeah, I, I was a massive fan of them. Um, and and just in general of these guys, like this school of comedy, it was an exciting moment. Uh, if I can give you guys a little bit of historical context, bear in mind that um, – and right now, Bob and Doug McKenzie are on their set in the film, and they're doing all of the Great White North chatter. Mm-hmm. Uh, Great White North came out of possibly one of the most brilliant things ever because SCTV started in 1976 as a sketch comedy show. And then eventually it jumped to the CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, partially publicly funded. But the Canadian edition of a show was two minutes longer due to commercial lengths and syndication times, just as, say... British broadcasts of The Muppet Show were also two minutes longer. And what happened was a bureaucrat from the Canadian equivalent of the FCC, the Canadian Radio and Telecommunications Commission, went to Second City and said, your program needs to be more explicitly Canadian. (laughs) And Dave Thomas and Rick Moranis, being reasonable people working on a a television show with an all-Canadian staff and all-Canadian stars and shot in Canada, just basically said, oh, you want Canadian, and threw together some beer cases and a Coleman stove and a coffee table and would shoot the Great White North bits unscripted, unplanned, just for the heck of it, and shove it into the Canadian broadcast as quote-unquote Canadian content. (laughs) So good. It really is. What's delightful about that to me is not knowing Canadians at all. This was the era where I was living in Chattanooga, so I was in the deep south. I knew these guys. Like Bob and Doug still, even though, yes, it is regional specific, Bob and Doug are so universal, and these – lunkheads who really have very, very, very low aspirations. And on the few occasions they do have aspirations, really no ambition with which to uh, achieve them. They are delightful. I love this movie that opens uh, their their movie within the movie that they made. I love that it looks like they shot it in about an hour and a half. And uh, there was nothing that you could do that would be wrong for this sequence. It's terrific. And that's what I loved about SCTV was that sort of cable access aesthetic. Um, before I even knew cable access, I still got the joke that it was local and community and low rent and charming. 
again, SCTV was involved, uh, or rather SCTV was all set up as the only TV station in Mellonville, yeah. a small Canadian town. And, uh, you know, and they would do big meta shows like having a satellite feed get replaced by one from Russia, which is where you had John Candy uh, talking to a tractor for a sitcom. Um, but yeah, the whole, I mean, bear in mind, the thing about Canadian culture is that when you're watching it as a Canadian, nine times out of 10, what you're told about it is that's not yours. It's from America or it's from Britain. And the things that are yours are usually pretty cheap, like the Beachcombers or the Littlest Hobo or Space 1999. So the idea that SC- or Seth Rogen. Well, you know, that's more advanced, but um, <laughs> sorry. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to get into the culture here. Sorry. Sorry. I understand. I, you know, but yeah. So you had this bunch of lunatics in the 1970s that included, of course, uh, you know, you had Rick Moranis, you had Dave Thomas, you had Eugene Levy, Joe Flaherty, Catherine O'Hara, Martin Short, all these Tony Rosato. Any women? Any women at all, James? Well, Catherine O'Hara, Andrea Martin, and also (laughs) Robin Duke. Robin Robin Duke, Duke. yeah. And also roughly affiliated with the SCTV crowd, thanks to a legendary production of Godspell in Toronto, Gilda Radner and Bill Murray, as well as Dan Aykroyd. Yep. Pretty much everyone who was in that 1972, I believe, tryout production of Godspell either wound up on Saturday Night Live or in SCTV. There's actually some footage of that Toronto infamous production of Godspell in the upcoming Magnolia doc, uh, Love Gilda, because Gilda Radner was in that production as well. As well Ladies as- and gentlemen, you don't get this kind of hard info from our normal guests. This is what <laughs> happens we, when you bring the erudite, the, the learned. The- we can just... Yeah. We can just settle for abnormal. Uh, James, I have a question for you. I'm going to start you off with a Canadian trivia question. Real simple, real easy one. What Canadian city is known as Hollywood North? Well, technically Toronto. Oh, Vancouver or Toronto, depending on whether you're CW or feature film. I will accept that dual answer because I just knew, I thought it was just Vancouver. Well, um, Vancouver is where they currently shoot almost all of the CWDC universe stuff. It's also why they talk about maple syrup on Riverdale. But back in the day, <laughs> Strange Brew is primarily shot around Toronto, of course, but also in Hamilton, Ontario. Now, Hamilton was a town I grew up near. It was a 40-minute drive from the outskirts of nowhere to the middle of nowhere. Mm. But when you look at Strange Brew, for example, the brick red building of the Elsinore Brewery, that's a matte painting over the offices of the Hamilton Spectator, Hamilton's <laughs> daily newspaper. <laughs> and, and the Institute for the Criminally Insane is actually a matte painting over Westdale High School, a well-known Gothic <laughs> high school from the 1800s where they could literally paint over it put them next to each other and then, you know, have them be at the base of a hill for Bob and Doug to drive up. Um, another thing I need to talk about is, you know, to, to get to Drew's point, it's easy to love Bob and Doug and it's easy to see them as a comedic tradition of holy fools that goes from Abbott and Costello through Bob and Doug up to Wayne and Garth, even up Chung. to... Cheech and Chong, The Friends on Letterkenny, which is a more modern Canadian comedy thing that's coming to Hulu very soon. James, uh, true or false? The Trailer Park Boys, funny? The Trailer Park Boys are funny if you didn't live it. 
Like <laughs> Bubbles is funny if you've never talked to him about needing a toe on Highway 6 at 2 in the morning. Uh, Trailer Park Boys is a little bit too close of a bone for anyone who actually lives in rural, uh, has lived reason, in rural Canada. Only reason I'm asking is because I, I consider myself a big fan of most uh, popular or well-known Canadian comedy. And I have tried the movie. I've tried the show. It doesn't take. It's like a food that just won't – I can't eat. <laughs> I think that the Trailer Park Boys stoops a little bit too low to conquer. And while Bob and Dave don't have clearly defined characters especially well – I mean, they both like to fight. They both like beer. They both like donuts. But they don't have any real differences. And even like the whole thing of Wayne is ambitious and Garth would like to hang out with a lady, that gives those characters enough differentiation. I think for Bob and Doug, it's a little bit trickier – but it is also why you can pop them into a plot that is essentially Macbeth at a brewery and have them function as Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Oh, sorry, is it Hamlet? Yes, Hamlet. <laughs> well, and that's the, 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 let's talk for a moment about the ambition of that because yeah. you've got Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas making their – first of all, this is Rick Moranis' screen debut, which is astounding. Um, the idea that this hey, was yeah, the and first time. He, yeah. So they're writing, directing, and this is Rick's first starring role. You know, David done a little bit of film work, but really for both of them, ground zero. Um, it's remarkably ambitious, and yet am, lack of ambition is baked into the characters. It's a really interesting sort of shaggy dog story that I wonder how whose idea it was to hang it on Hamlet as a spine and then have that be this thing that plays out in a very meta ridiculous way against what's basically formless otherwise. It is pretty formless otherwise. And again, this movie shouldn't exist. MGM were convinced that this movie could be made for $5 million. <laughs> it looks it. The screenplay, interestingly, is credited not just to Moranis and Thomas, but it also includes Steve DiGiarnat, who you may know as the co-writer of several various uh, comedies Mir and what have you. The so Miracle this, Mile, a great, great uh, sci-fi movie. Amazing yeah. sci-fi movie amazing sci-fi movie but again it was a product of more than just thomas and moranis and at the same time thomas and moranis were used to doing these characters in two minute bursts so the idea of expanding it was going to be super problematic you know what i love a, a lot about this movie is that it feels in many ways exactly like an snl spinoff you know there are you know two dozen snl character movies uh, most of which are not very good because they they don't realize how to expand the character beyond one funny look and one catchphrase. And the, the, the challenge to this movie, which if it, if it qualified as an SNL movie, I'd put it like right behind the Blues Brothers and maybe Wayne's World as the, in the top three because it's its own feature. It's its own story. It's not just relying on let's expand a sketch. It, it is an expansion of a sketch, but it's a huge expansion. Of well, sketch. and I, I would ask you this, James, as, as somebody who was a giant SCTV fan, I feel like I was robbed of the great Melonville movie. Like, that's what I wish I could have at some point seen is all those characters that we spent so much time getting to know over the course of that series finally let loose in a Melonville that seemed real. You know, that would have been like a feature film version of 22 short film, 32 short films about Springfield, <laughs> which 
which was itself inspired by the Canadian film, 32 short films about Glenn Gould. Yeah. So, hey, it all comes back to Canada. And Drew, you are right about Mellonville. But again, that was one of the reasons why the Great White North had to exist. A lot of SCTV was 70s sh showbiz parodies. Characters like Bobby Bittman, who's like the more unctuous Tony Bennett. Characters like Lola Heatherton, who's like an Edie Gourmet. So it was all <laughs> late 70s decay of show business stuff. And while Farm Film Report was that rural touch, Great White North was what took off. Drew, what time signature are we at in the film right now, if I might be so bold as to ask? Uh, we are at uh, 13 minutes. And it's our first, uh, first zoom in on Elsinore Brewery's logo. So really briefly, uh, Bob and Doug at 1309 are about to go up a hill towards a matte painting, but um, they make that mountain by basically taping two photos of Hamilton, Ontario's escarpment together. So later, <laughs> later on, as you see Bob and Doug going up various you know, highways up a mountain, that's actually the Hamilton escarpment. And in many cases, they just put it on top of itself to line it up for the shot. Um, we also previously just had Mel Blanc as a voice of Bob and yeah. Doug's dad, which is a really nice touch. Weird. And, and my friends and I laughed so hard at that joke at the beginning. We And to this day, I still don't really get it. It's just weird. Um, now, I have a question, James. Was it odd? Because I, I think this film and... Scott Pilgrim might be one, two of the only examples I know of where you have Toronto playing Toronto, where you're actually shooting it as itself to some some extent. Um, is that unusual for you guys? And how weird is it watching movies that were set elsewhere shot in Toronto and just recognizing everything constantly? Oh, I mean, if you watch the Edward Norton, the Hulk, it's like going, oh, boy, Edward Norton's about to throw down with Emil Blonsky out in front of a pizza pizza on Young. Uh, any Canadian film watcher can spot like a sun newspaper box in the background. In Jackie Chan's Rumble in the Bronx, shot in Vancouver, not the Bronx, you can see the Rocky Mountains in the background. It is, <laughs> it is a running joke. Uh, I, once, uh, I once saw a movie, uh, uh, I think it was called My Baby's Daddy or My Baby Daddy, one or the other, where Vancouver was playing Philadelphia and not well. Yeah. Uh, you can do a lot with Vancouver. Battlestar Galactica did a lot with it. You can do a lot with Toronto. And, I mean, Hamilton you only shoot in when you need it to be bad. Kick-Ass was shot in Hamilton. Yep. Um, uh, Four Brothers, a Mark Wahlberg remake of The Sons of Katie Elder, was all shot about a block away from where my father grew up, and that looks like hell. James, uh, speaking of cities, what Canadian city is home to North America's largest mall? Uh, I think that would be uh, Edmonton, Alberta, the West Edmonton Mall. You are correct. Can you name any films that were shot in Edmonton? Uh, you know, it's hard because Alberta is so big. Oh, uh, Way Downtown, a great Canadian indie, was shot in Calgary, Alberta, or Edmonton. And it's about the fact that Canadian cities tend to have their buildings collected by tunnels and four office drones make a bet. Right. I've seen that. Yeah. Who can go out the least? So oh, it's like I'll, I'll see that. I've heard the title. I've never seen it. Yeah, it's, it's competitive uh, mole people. And, I mean, but <laughs> Drew is quite right. When you watch a film like Strange Brew or, say, Last Night, which is so demonstrably Canadian and begins with a tipped-over TTC car, which must have cost a bunch of money, it is great to see those cities as Canadian, just like in 
Um, you know, Hitchcock shot I Confess in Montreal, and a great French-Canadian filmmaker made a whole film about that and what having that circus come to town did to a small town, did to small town Montreal in the 50s. So the fact that Canada and Hollywood have a complicated and beneficial history uh, is very much something any Canadian filmmaker gets, uh, film watcher gets used to. I, uh, when we did Cigarette Burns, the first Masters of Horror, it was set in several different countries over the course of the episode. As we were doing rewrites, we just kept running into the fact that the last place they were supposed to go, we couldn't get any place that looked like another place. And so finally, we just wrote it as Vancouver because fuck it. It just it was easier to have them go to Vancouver. Um, yeah, it's it's crazy how and to some extent, it feels like these places have been mined out like they've been shot so many times that they they tend to you start, start to recognize stuff, even if you're not Canadian. Again, if you're watching A Handmaid's Tale and you see Toronto City Hall, you go, oh, I remember Mila Jojovich running down that building and blowing it up in Resident Evil 7.4. You know, it does. <laughs> you can strip mine uh, Canadian uh, filming locations a bit. Excuse me. It was Resident Evil 3.4. Come on. I understand. I understand. I love James, the idea wanna... of donuts as currency in this movie. Donuts yeah. are so big for these guys. Uh, well, actually, Canada's hugely fond of donuts, and Hamilton, Ontario, again, has more donut stores per capita than any place in the world. James, why do you think that is? What is the, I could tell you somewhat, the origin of the Philadelphia cheesesteak and why it's so popular here. Can you pinpoint this cliche and where it comes from? Absolutely, I can. So, And, in, and follow-up question, what's a bear claw? Well... In the late 60s, early 70s, there was an incredibly popular Maple Leaf named Tim Horton, member of a Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, you know, a hockey team. And he began a small empire and he opened up one, two, three donut shops under the name Tim Horton. My dad, who was a lawyer in Hamilton, Ontario, actually did the legal paperwork for those three first donut shops. Then Tim Horton perished in a driving accident, a drunk driving accident. There's your PSA. And the whole, the widow was like, I don't want to deal with these three piddly donut shops. I'll sell the license. And whoever she sold it to blew it out nationwide. So that much as we joke about there's a Starbucks across the corner from a Starbucks in America, for the past 20 years, there's been a Tim Hortons across the way from a Tim Hortons. Yeah. In some northern com Canadian communities, because the police station and the Tim Hortons are the only, uh, I guess, institutions open 24 hours, they just put them in the same building. Well, it's funny. You, you talk about – because I, I feel like there is a reverence that comes built into the tragic ending of Tim Hortons' life and the fact that he was a beloved hockey player, and that is – Canadian on top of Canadian in some way. Um, and this movie, they there's a little bit of that reverence in this with the character that we've just been introduced to, uh, Rosie LaRose, uh, played by Angus McInnes, who is a one-time hockey great who is sort of now humbled and working at the thing. But there is that sense that the guys are flipping out when they meet him just because he played once. And again, you know, uh, Rosie, uh, I believe the character's name is something like Rosie LaRose. Yeah. But, I mean, you had great Quebecois players with names like uh, Maurice Rocket Richard. And they called him Rocket because he skated really fast and because nobody wants to shout, go Maurice, at a hockey game. <laughs> uh, Angus McFadden, you may recognize from... Uh, go Maurice! 
you know, it doesn't quite sound so good. Uh, but again, he, Angus, uh, this gentleman who's playing Rosie, he's done everything from Force 10 from Navarone to Hellraiser to being in Witness. Yeah. Uh, again, he's one of those guys who had a British career, moved to Canada, lived off of a gravy forever. Much like Douglas Campbell, who plays the uh, lower brewmaster under Max von Sydow, who we haven't even begun to talk about yet. Which is can we, can we save the most Max exciting von, casting, yes. Yeah, can, we, can we save Max von Sydow for just a moment? Let's just talk for a quick second about the beloved, wonderful, awesome, I love Paul Dooley. Yes. Uh, we know uh, he was uh, in Popeye, right? Drew, we cover he was cast uh, role. Yep. In fact, he's the star of the first movie released in the 80s. Uh, he is the star of the Robert Altman uh, lingered on the shelf for a while and finally got dumped on like January 3rd, a perfect couple. Um, and it was one of those Altman films where Altman's let's just do it as jazz thing didn't really pay out. Yeah. Most but, people uh, would know Paul Dooley from, I believe, Breaking Away. Correct. Yeah. yeah and he's like, amazing in that. And he's just like, oh, that voice, that lovable dad face. And he is really good in Strange Brew. He's very funny. Um, the only reason Mox von Sydow was in this is because his son was a huge fan. M the head of MGM at the time had worked with Max von Sydow. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Thomas uh, uh, wanted him for the part, and it turns <laughs> out his son was a huge fan. So his son said, no, Dad, you get to play the Bond villain in a Canadian beer comedy. Nice. Drew, uh, I'm, what I'm going to do is throw out some can funny Canadian people. And what I want to do is I want Drew, you to rate these people on a one to five star scale and then James to follow it up on the same thing. Because I'm trying an experiment here to see. Ready? Dan Aykroyd. Uh, I give Dan a four. I give Dan Aykroyd a four as long as he doesn't talk about space aliens, then it dips to three. Yes. Okay. Jay Baruchel. Jay Baruchel. Uh, I give Jay a good solid 3.5. 3.5 edging on a four if you yeah. just drop the profanity, the excess profanity from the scripts <laughs> for Goon. Because Goon should have profanity. It shouldn't have that much profanity. You know what I mean? Yeah, fair yeah. enough. How about Jim Carrey? You know, Jim Carrey, it's so weird because he was like a comet. He got out of Canada as swiftly as possible. So it's weird to think of him as Canadian. It's also weird to think of him as funny. I um I watched the Cuban <laughs> Pete sequence. Meow! Meow! I, wa I watched the Cuban Pete sequence from the mask recently because I guess I had done something wrong to someone. And I thought it looked like at best energetic necrophilia. <laughs> like you're just you're just contorting the body all around, but no matter how hard you work, it's not gonna get any more lively. It's not scathing. So we're not gonna do the mask commentary with James. No. <laughs> I think at his best, Jim Carrey is absolutely brilliant. Uh, he's just how frequently is he at his best? J Drew? Uh, I think I think Jim is a terrifically talented guy who uh, has got to have a very strong, strong directorial hand. Fair enough. I will return to how funny is this Canadian shortly. Now back to Strange Brew. Uh, so just to, the one thing I need to explain about this movie is that a lot of it is really hinging upon little moments in Canadian beer culture. In that, in Canada, in the 70s, 80s, even the 90s, you couldn't just go to a grocery store and buy beer. You couldn't go buy a handle of rye whiskey at your local Loblaws. You had to go to state 
run stores. And they would have that little conveyor belt apparatus. You would bring in your empties, exchange them for a five cent deposit, and then they would roll out the fresh beer you wanted. And they had limited hours and limited locations. And of course, the irony is that now that's all gone. But there are jokes in this about, you know, what goes on behind the little conveyor belt for your empties. Where do the disappearing beers go? There was an urban legend about if you find a dead mouse in your beer, like the brewery will totally pay for it. And that was back in the 80s when an urban legend actually meant something. You couldn't like yep. you couldn't wait for Snopes. You had to maybe see if Jan Harold Brunvald would write it up. But all <laughs> of that. All of that beer culture stuff is very much embedded into it. And again, when you look behind Bob and Doug on the quote-unquote set of A Great White North, those are real beer brands. It's all real, like, uh, you know, uh, Expo or Molson Canadian, which is still a pretty good beer. Uh, But the fact that this all revolves around a brewery is just, of course. All right. Uh, uh, just because I want to get in this episode super viral and infuriate the Canadians, James, I want you to name the very best, single best Canadian beer. No, no, just one. I have always enjoyed, and your mileage may vary, but Sleeman's Cream Ale, brewed in Guelph. It is aces, light, bright, with a hint of hops and a delightfully fresh summer finish. There you go. I, I feel like Scott might be knocking things over in like <laughs> Bobby, I swear. I want you to cut that out and put it on our next normal episode like it's our a real commercial. <laughs> All right, that was great. Um, uh, the, uh, the stuff so that- there uh, sorry, Drew, just if anybody there has an answer different than Sleeman's, haha, tough. What are you gonna do about it? Sleeman's is the best. Cream ale. Sorry, Drew, go ahead. Um, so the stuff that we're getting into now, that it's one of those things that I always find interesting when you have comedians who you know you want to build a film around, and then you just find an excuse to build a film around them when you get to plot mechanics. Because plot mechanics tend to kill most comedies. There is a momentum to comedy that at its best is very loose and you're not really worried about where you're going. And then you get to something like this in the video game sequence now and the ghost and all this stuff. And there's a lot of footwork in this movie just to get them into the various places where they get to be idiots. If I might, Drew, it's even worse because there's a lot of footwork in this movie that gets Bob and Doug to where they can be idiots, but gets our leads into places where, you know, uh, Rosie and Pam, where they can figure things out. We haven't even talked about Pam Elsinore, the Ophelia of this Hamlet riff. Uh-huh who's played by Lynn Griffin, who it turns out, A, has never stopped working, even though she's not exactly familiar, and B, is in another film I know you cats like, the Canadian produced The Amateur, which is a great little neat thriller involving Christopher Plummer and a young man whose girlfriend gets killed by terrorists and gets recruited by the CIA, because while he may not be competent, he is passionate. So uh, Lynn Griffin, another great callback to a great shot in Canada movie. I know you cats also, have talked about. 
Yeah, she's really good in this. Sorry, I just wanted to throw that in there. She she gets the tone. She's very charming, and she gets some light. She doesn't, you know, get much. Neither of those guys get much to do as far as big laughs. It's the Zeppo. Both. It's the Zeppo story or the Gummo storyline where they have to carry the romantic storyline and they have to carry the like business end of the storyline, and then Bob and Doug get to come in and kill. Well, um, like you said, kind of like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern thing. It's like as if these are the the leads of a different movie, and we're just watching these two buffoons in the background. God, what look I, at how young Rick is. Look at how young they are in this movie, man. I was going to say uh, very much to Drew's point, like a lot of, you know, comedies of the time, there's a lot of stuff in this that's just hit the switch on a blender. I mean, around like, uh, you know, the 20-minute point when they explain the music, thanks to the beer, drives the inmates insane, all the camera work goes to sort of faux Romero you know, running and shouting and bad synthesizer music. Uh, mm. And you have the whole thing of the white clad and the black clad hockey players. And even the cast makes Star Wars jokes about that. So there's a lot of pop and, you know, sort of the movie. Oh, oh by the way, as a kid, I was I was not even a big hockey fan, but I thought those uh, those co- the hockey outfits were so freaking cool. Yeah, you, of course, if you were Canadian, you would, too. You'd be like, why are not we all? playing hockey in fascist body armor. James, um, Dave Foley. How funny is Dave Foley? Uh, Dave Foley is incredible. Dave Foley is a good, solid 4.5. Uh, Dave Foley in the kids in the hall days killed it. If you just YouTube Dave Foley, I'm a bad doctor, you will cry with laughter at young oh, maniacal Dave Foley I've seen doing a couple of those, best. Yeah. Kids in the Hall, I, I mean, if we're going to just real quickly run through like the history of the true comedy troupe greats, country notwithstanding. I mean, I think all three of us probably went Monty, Monty Python to SCTV to Kids in the Hall to the state with, you know, Saturday Night Live always being a standard as well. Saturday Night Live and its many incarnations sort of being like the baseline you measure away from. But yeah, at the time, something as deliberately Canadian as the Kids in the Hall, which was making jokes about craft dinner, a.k.a. macaroni and cheese, and various other aspects of Toronto culture, that was great stuff to see. Again, most of the time, you know, 90% of the Canadian population lives within one hour's drive of the U.S. border. So I grew up just bathed in the electromagnetic radiation of America. And that's ironically, if it weren't that, for America, that, that was just Detroit. That's all that was. No, but again, the whole thing is that, you know, the being next to America is why Canada has Canadian content regulations, which still exist to this day. There's a bunch of people who get work in part because they're good, but also in part because, oh, we can help get our Canadian tax credit for this. You, that's an interesting question. Do you guys think that that is there's anything wrong with that? requiring a, a, a certain amount of Canadians or Germans in Germany or Mexicans in Mexico. Is it, do you think that's a bad thing or does that, does, I mean, I really, I really enjoy the Canadian Canada. actors. Yeah. I, I love the Canadian talent we worked with uh, on both of the cigarette, uh, both cigarette birds and pro-life. I thought they were great and it was a different talent pool. So you basically had two rounds of casting. You have your American casting or in our case, international, cause we went for Udo Kier and we went for, um, uh, Oh, God, uh, Walking Dead, uh, uh, Norman Reedus. Um, and then everybody else basically was Canadian. And then so, yeah, you get up to Toronto and you do round two and then you just see the very best of Toronto's talent pool. 
So there's, it's interesting that you do have a lot of familiar faces where if you watch Canadian TV or Canadian films, there are people that you get very familiar with who almost always are supporting roles, who are the office staff or the cops or the whatever, because they are filling the Canadian content hiring roles. What I'll say, Scott, as somebody who grew up in Canada, and bear in mind, I have probably an entirely too deep perspective on this because way back when, when I graduated uh, university, my first job was being program director of a university radio station, which also had strict Canadian content regulations. And what I'd say is this, if America were suddenly located geographically directly adjacent to a nation of 3 billion people who made their own movies and television and spoke English, you would see the equivalent of, a na- of American content laws, right? Yeah. And, that's, and that's partially, it's tough trying to preserve an identity and it's tough trying to preserve an industry. So yeah, Canadian content laws keep Canadians employed. Also, Canadian content laws are uh, great for controversy, One of my favorite sentences in all of film criticism was written about David Cronenberg's debut film. Uh, The Canadian Ebert, Robert Fulford, reviewed it with a headline of, you should know how bad this movie is. After all, you helped pay for it. Yeah, you paid for it, right. And it's an evisceration of shivers as a waste of taxpayer money. Yeah, so I mean, I, whatever happened to that David Cronenberg guy, Mr. Flumflirt? Whatever happened to Cronenberg? Did he? I think he fizzled out. He made a couple of things. No, and again, like if you didn't have that kind of tax cheat dentist money going into movies like the early Cronenbergs, like Meatballs, like My Funny Valentine, like Nope, My Bloody My Funny Valentine. What are you talking about? My Bloody Valentine. Did I say My Funny Valentine? You did. That's because, Scott, you make me smile with my heart. Uh, <laughs> wait, wait, Drew, I, I, uh, uh, James, I want to take a pause real quick, and I, I would like you to li- tell our listeners the names of your three cats. Sammy, Frankie, and Dino. Thank you. Keep, all right, now continue. Uh, again, we were talking about the, the whole thing is that it's tough to keep a film industry running when you're adjacent to a nation which has 100 times your population. No, no, yeah, I agree. I was just wondering if there is anybody who was on the, on the con side, maybe a producer in Vancouver saying, why do we have to, if I want to shoot here and hire 100% American cast, why can't I? And I'm you know, I'm just playing devil's advocate for Christ's well, sake. Well, that producer would be cutting their throat on their own budget, right? Yeah. Or they wouldn't give a tax break. And no producer will cut their throat on their own budget. I mean, the one thing you'll hear about as a, uh, as a counter to things like uh, state-funded arts organizations, not just in Canada, but in Finland, Sweden. You know, the saying is, nobody ever made a great piece of art by committee. And that's true, but committees can put together the funding for great pieces of art. Oh, uh, good, good thought. And, and here's something that I, I think is a, a important to put into context. One of the things that you you – is clear from the history of seventies and eighties comedy is that Canadian comedy is a result of that relationship that they have with American culture. And a lot of the attitude that then has become mainstream American culture came from that Canadian sensibility. So it, it's a weird feedback loop where I don't think these comics would have been these comics if they hadn't had a little bit of a inferiority complex slash chip on their shoulders slash we're going to prove that Canadian comedy is its own real thing. Yeah, it could be that. Plus, it could just be like a guy like Mike Myers grew up watching 
70% American comedy. And him being Canadian doesn't have anything to do with anything. He just wanted to be funny like the people he saw. Again, uh, probably more, if I might, more yeah. like 90%, right? Yeah. If yeah. you were looking for Canadian comedy before SCTV, you were limited to Wayne and Schuster, who are an old-style vaudeville duo, who were also the guests who appeared most frequently on the Ed Sullivan Show. True fact. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would also have this sort of uh, country corn pone character named Charlie Farkason, who was actually all done as a sort of Mark Twain-like rural sage. And that was all done by uh, the father of director Mary Heron. Oh, neat. Oh, yeah. wow. So, okay. yeah. And uh, Charlie Farkason even made it onto Hee Haw in the States. <laughs> and uh, so Charlie now, Farkason now, now is like a prototype for Red Green, which is a prototype for the Trailer Park Boys. There's a lot of like rur- rural bumblers in Canadian comedy because there are a certain amount of rural bumblers in Canada. Can you explain Tom Green? What's really funny about Tom Green is that when he first oozed his way into the Canadian culture, he was part of a group of three white rappers from Toronto called Organized Rhyme, whose chorus consisted of, I wish I were kidding, check the OR, you like it so far, repeated and repeated and repeated. So when Tom Green stopped doing bad rap and started doing bad comedy, it was like, oh, he's a double non-threat. All right, and we'll counter that with with one. We're going to take a quick second to honor. (laughs) I'm just laughing at Max von Zydow dressed up as Bob McKenzie. It's genuinely one of the great joys of this movie. But that also is is a really well done over the shoulder cut where you are temporarily like, what's going on? And then you see Bob... Paul Dooley in a toque is pretty funny in and of <laughs> it's, itself. It's As, just, yeah, the fact that this is, like, from Bergman to this, that journey is yeah, part of what makes that, acting delightful. That's, I mean, that and I mean delightful. So, no, no, I, I, I totally cut you off. I'm sorry, but that is so what I love about greats like Max von Sydow or Zydow, however you're going to pronounce it. I'm from Philadelphia. I'll say it how I want. No disrespect, but... The guy is one of the acting greats of all time, and he knows when and how to get either theatrical, a la Flash Gordon, uh, or, or uh, you know, stage villainy, like in Dreamscape, or in this, mocking himself in a well-written comedy. And, and he's just brilliant. He's just, I love this guy. Whenever I think of Max on Sido in this film, the equivalent performance I think of, and I know this is a favorite of yours, Scott, but Ben Kingsley in Without a Clue. (laughs) Ben Kingsley, trained dramatic actor, RSC veteran, has played everything from Gandhi to, believe it or not, Othello. There was a great production of Othello where Ben Kingsley played the title role. Wow. He was Haile Selassie. But you put him in that comedy and his timing is exquisite his reactions are exquisite and it demonstrates that you know comedy and drama are not different and distinct they're related oh if, yeah if yeah, you yeah. really uh, know how to do one you can get real, I, I don't yeah i think a lot of times why real like 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 veteran like your your olivier's your von zito's blah 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 like guys like that i think they do drama more often because that's their wheelhouse and I think comedy is like in, a little intimidating to to, to very uh, uh, straight faced, poker faced, serious actors because you do risk coming off foolish if you don't have a good director and you don't have a good editor. Uh, you risk coming off looking like somebody in Yellowbeard as opposed to Von Cidow in Strange Brew. 
But in this, he is terrific. And the fact that they get as many Bond villain jokes in as they do on that limited, limited budget. The whole joke where Von Sydow walks out of a light-up map and at the lower right-hand corner in Australia is the restroom. I love that as a general James <laughs> Bond set-dressing joke, you know? This, this movie is a big old cultural bouillabaisse. They put the fries down, then the cheese curds, then the gravy, but it does all work together. Even now, James, it's only what's, good the while it's hot. what's the difference between, like, just melted cheese and cheese curds? Because the word curd just gets in my throat. I don't like it. Just think of curds as a sort of proto version of cheese, Scott, in that any cheese, you're going to acidulate milk, affect it with various acids and enzymes. The liquids will separate out from the proteins, the curds and the whey. Now, those curds are then pressed and aged into more of like a familiar cutting cheese like cheddar. But as the curds they have a slightly looser texture, they're individual and they, when fresh, literally squeak when you bite into them because the curds are so fresh and so perfectly made. So if you're eating your poutine with just cheese, cheese on it, it should be cheese curds of a proper blend of texture and taste as a moderate point between the crispness of the fries and the sort of proteiny umami smoothness of the gravy. All right. So what, what do you think about Phil Hartman? Uh, Phil Hartman, an incredible talent, but I, I'm always unsure if Phil Hartman is Canadian or not. Oh, OK. I'm just looking at a list of famous comedians and, and uh, Drew. Oh, if, if Phil Hartman's Canadian, I'll absolutely take it. Uh, okay. But he is just one of the great comedian, comedic actors of our time, never mind Canadian. Oh, he was born in Brantford and moved to the U.S. when he was 10. So it's hard to think of, of Phil Hartman as a truly having a truly Canadian sensibility. True or false? True or false? Drew, Rich yeah. Little, no talent. Canadian or not Canadian? Is no. that what you're asking? Talented oh. or not talented? Oh, I, I don't get Rich Little, but that's that's hard. It's generational. That's my dad's like era of comedy. Um, I have a great story to tell you about Rich Little, actually, gentlemen. Do. I was recently in uh, Las Vegas with my in-laws looking for things to do other than not talk politics. And a brief perusal of the entertainment listings, uh, um, basically the comedian of an uh, impressionist of whom we were in fact speaking, Rich Little, still does a one-man show. Now, I went to that show and I was maybe the youngest person there. Is he uh, 190? He's How? about he's about 190. My bride was definitely the youngest person there. I was second, wow. and everyone else God was wearing, was obviously the man is talented. I was just being a wise ass, but that's great. I didn't know he was still working. Yep, and uh, the show is only lightly racist. You know, he got, he, he comes out and he says, uh, "I'm glad to see you all here. Uh, next year, I'll be happy if a place is full of Syrian refugees." And you think, "Oh no!" Oh, and of what? course, <laughs> all of his impressions are of dead people. You get like a half hour of Reagan. You get like 20 minutes or so of George Burns. He doesn't really do any alive people. But yeah, Rich Little started doing impressions on Canadian radio when he was 15 and only got his U.S. break because at 15, 16, he did an amazing Judy Garland. And that's what got him on the Judy Garland show. And from there, he didn't look back. But yeah, you can go to Vegas and pay entirely too much for an hour of Rich Little impersonating nothing but dead people, and it's great. 
<laughs> Drew, I'm sorry. You were going to go on. I cut you off. Uh, I was just going to say that um, one of the things I find <laughs> interesting about Phil Hartman is something that's also true of Dave Thomas, which is they're not really conventional um, comedy leads. Thomas didn't do a lot of this. There, there weren't there aren't many Dave Thomas movies. And there's part of that is I think Dave Thomas is one of those dudes like Wilford Brimley, who there's something about him. He was essentially 55 years old the day he was born. And 55 years forever, 55 years old forever. It's all of the curmudgeons on SCTV were always Dave Thomas. Uh, and I think there's a like there was something about him that just fit that. And it doesn't make him the most easy to plug in. Yeah, he's, he's like so, like the like so much in every man. And not, without taking anything away from his talent, the guy is one of the uh, a great. Oh, an amazing utility and, player. And a like, good, yeah. good character actor. But yeah, you're right. I don't unless he's playing a role like in this, Dave Thomas is definitely a support player. And in most cases, I mean Rick Moranis was great and honey, I shrunk the kids, but in most cases it's true of him as well. Oh, and Little Shop. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But at the same time, you watch Strange Brew and you can see all of the stuff that Moranis would bring to Lewis Tully and Ghostbusters. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like the, the just, one character. I, I think I'm just trying to cover. bend over. I'm trying to bend over to like not uh, not backhanded compliment the less uh, well-known of the two. That's all. I, I think utility players are enormously important for comedy. And Dave Thomas is able to vanish into things. doesn't make him any less great. But Rick Moranis, I think there is a sweetness so I, I love something Dave about Thomas him that you connect to differently. But I, when I think of Beyond Strange Brew and SCTV, I think of Dave Thomas as the MC of the uh, ladies' mud wrestling in Stripes. <laughs> uh, Dave Thomas for a, Dave Thomas for a while had one of those great stealth careers. He was on the sitcom Grace Under Fire or Grace Under Pressure, whichever it was called, Fire, yeah. for for years, and he made that money, and he's got that money, and he was never a star. But guess what? Solid career. Drew, okay, I, I'm not Drew, uh, not Drew. The other one, James. Can you tell us anything off the top of your head about a film called Going Berserk? Oh, that's a really early Ivan Reitman, Ivan Reitman, Harold Ramis one, isn't it? That was even before my David time. David Steinberg directed it. Oh, David Steinberg. Again, one of the great Canadians. No one knows is Canadian. But all of that early, you know, David Steinberg, Harold Ramis, Ivan Reitman stuff, that all came out of Canada. That all came out of tax dodge money. That all came out of dentists from Dundas saying, I don't feel like paying too much. I'm going to back... Uh, Black Christmas with my uh, with my money instead of giving it to the tax yeah. man. And those guys made their money back. Yeah, they very much did. Um, Drew, have we reached the courtroom scene yet? Not yet. Okay. I, I'm only going to mention the courtroom scene because, A, there's some good physical prop comedy in it, and, B, it gives you a chance to see what the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's father, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, looked like. Um, I always yeah, describe – Is he a good president? Prime Minister? Whatever. Prime Minister. Get, get over yourself. <laughs> uh, Trudeau, whenever I try to explain Trudeau to people, the phrase I've hit upon is fun, sexy Nixon. Like he was very much a master of real politic, but he would go out to discos and wear ascots and he would fight tooth and nail against his enemies, but always with a twinkle in his so, eye. Like Gore Vidal, basically. Yeah. Yeah, Gore, like Gore Vidal crossed with Nixon. Like a lot of real politic, a lot of great fighting. When they said to Pierre Elliott Trudeau, you can't just change Canada's constitution, his response to reporters was, 
Just watch me. Uh, we're going real deep for Canada Files here, but wow. there's a great, uh, great miniseries about Trudeau's life where Pierre Elliott Trudeau is played by the great Canadian never got a dinner actor, Colm Fior. Yeah. You will recognize oh. Colm Fior from getting dragged in to play bad guys in stuff from Thor The Dark World to the second pitch yeah. black movie. Yeah, or the, the Chronicles of He's great in Chronicles of Riddick, which is not a movie I like, but Colm Fiore is you got everybody in who's hearing this uh, episode knows the uh, face. Or the just mentioned 32 short films about Glenn Gold. Yes. Or playing the doctor in charge of the uh, cranial transplantation policy in Face Off. <laughs> or um, I've been saving this for about the midpoint. Drew, we're about there. Yeah. The van just went into the water and I love the way they survive. Great stunt, it is such a preposterously dumb Solution the, and great. It's a Blues Brothers joke, right? Yeah, it's I mean, great. It's a joke take, like inspired clearly by the the, the maniacal explosions in Blues Brothers. Um, James, I wanted to know if we could take a quick sidebar for our horror-loving crowd. And if you could, if you would, give a brief history uh, on your experience working on a certain horror film made while you were in high school. Well, roughly about five years after Strange Brew, so we're talking like 1988 – I was doing a lot of like high school theater and what have you because my lack of talent was not a detriment to my ambitions. And uh, one summer, uh, the person who I've been working with in high school theater said, they're looking for extras for a horror film that's shooting in Dundas. You should go out for the job. That horror film was Black Roses, which you may recall as a horror film where <laughs> yeah. Satan comes to town fronting a rock band. Uh, it also means that my separation from Kevin Bacon number is merely two, as a mayor in Black Roses is the red, burly character actor who also plays a mayor in Footloose. Um, it featured uh, one of the actors from Sopranos in their earliest role as a bad dad who gets pulled into a speaker. And when you ask me what I remember about shooting black roses, all I can recall is bad coffee, my white denim jacket, God help me, it was the Times, and generally smelling like artificial smoke at three in the morning. It is not a good film. And let me ask you this. You, you were not an extra, though. You have, you have lines. Uh, they, for some reason, they credited me as Biff because at one point <laughs> I have to say out loud, one of us, one of us. So, yeah, it's, uh, you know, not uh, not great in terms of overall performance, but ironically, I watch it now. And a lot of my friends who I, uh, you know, one of my friends who was in that, Brad Garrett, who was a stage actor in Canada, he was just 18, with a great shot of him chanting, one of us, and he's no longer with us due to uh, liver cancer, you know. So it's gone from this weird kind of thing, I recall, to being a sort of memento mori of time past. I mean, it's not exactly, I'm not going to compare watching Black Roses into biting into a Madeleine, but it was, you know, 30 years ago. So I yeah. do have a certain amount of memory associated with it. If people, if, uh, if people take kindly to this episode, which I'm sure they will, uh, we will have James back as a, as a guest reviewer uh, on the 1988 episode when we cover Black Roses. You can cover Black Roses with plenty of things. Just make sure it's stink tight because that is not a good movie, my friend. <laughs> it's, is, it it's, better than New, is it better or worse than New Year's Evil? Ooh, good question. I will say this. It's more authentically Canadian than all of Scott Pilgrim. Oh, that's a burn. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> it might be preferable. Okay. Uh, all kidding aside, I mean, again, 
when you live in Toronto, you just see people shoot things. You just see people make things. And it's pretty hilarious, the stuff they try to get away with. You know what else is hilarious? Strange Brew? Colin Mockery, Canadian. Oh, yeah. Those guys have, uh, you know, always uh, made money. Colin Mockery and uh, uh, very much a Canadian moneymaker, one of those guys you just don't see as Canadian, but yes. Um, who else do are people funny? realize? Do people realize that the uh, cinematic lord? I'm going to let Drew answer this one. The cinematic king of deadpan comedy was Canadian. Drew. Who? Leslie Nielsen. Was he really? Yep. I did not know that. Leslie Nielsen was incredibly Canadian, and in fact, his brother was a member of Parliament. So you had, you know, one Leslie Nielsen representing Canada in the movies and one Nielsen representing Canada in the House of Parliament. It worked out relatively well. I think it would have been even better if it had been the other way around just because, oh, my God, think of how crazy that would have been. Leslie Nielsen in Parliament? What is this bill? It's a series of papers (laughs) stapled together, but that's not important right now. What it says is we're going to change the Constitution. I would have loved to have had a Nielsen administration. I mean, my spouse jokes that her life is a nightmare of, oh, do you know who's Canadian? But, I mean, that's, a, you know. Ryan so, Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds. Uh, Ryan Gosling, in fact. Ryan Gosling, uh, who uh, – Ryan Gosling and Rachel McAdams both did, like, eight-year-old summer theater with a friend of mine teaching it. And then it was, oh, yeah, you remember that eight-year-old? Well, they have the ambition of a rocket. So they're off in Hollywood right now. Bye-bye, Canada. It's fairly you know, hilarious. You know who else left Canada on a rocket? Uh, rocket Richard. R- William Shatner. Bill Shatner and James Doohan, both Canadian. And uh, actually, when they did with J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, I love that Bruce Greenwood was playing Captain Pike because I feel there should always be a Canadian on the bridge of the Enterprise. Super Canadian, Bruce Greenwood. Super right, Canadian, right, for the Bruce next Greenwood. Star Trek, all right, for the next Star Trek, the captain is Kevin McDonald. <laughs> uh, Kevin McDonald. Kevin McDonald was one of the kids in the hall. Surprise! Maybe not a great <laughs> career, but I know where he made money was of a Voices for Lilo and Stitch characters. Oh, man. Why is everything about money for you, James? Kevin McDonald is an artist. Because artists need to eat, Scott. Fair enough. I also Artist, I, Artists oddly have rent. And this now, is an episode that we are recording for our paying listeners. <laughs> I will say one thing. The best ever Kids in the Hall actor out of context, it isn't. Uh, Scott Thompson in Hannibal, where he plays a forensic scientist, but it is Scott Thompson in the science fiction film Millennium, where he has no lines, and he just <laughs> looks up from a computer wearing a ridiculous future outfit at our lead character with great concern occasionally, and doesn't say enough words to get paid. So speaking of Canadians and uh, films and appearances, uh, if you are looking for me in Run, Ronnie, Run, the Mr. Show movie, it is in the scene at the party. I, along with uh, Kevin Beagle and uh, several other Ain't It Cool guys from that era, uh, am talking to Scott Thompson when they walk up and somebody makes the joke about the gay agenda and he runs away to make a phone call and tell them the jig is up. But the uh, it's a quick moment, but there's all of us. And we spent the afternoon with Scott Thompson uh, just standing and waiting for his moment. And it was, for a Kids in the Hall fan, a complete delight only equaled by one other thing, 
when later, because of Mr. Show, I got to be backstage at a live Mr. Show Kids in the Hall gig and see the wig table for Kids in the Hall. And if you know comedy history, wig tables for those kinds of guys, that is one of my very favorite things, seeing all the the quick change hair and stuff. Now, this so is- a wig table is a table that has their wigs on it. And this is a lesser known, lesser known fact in Canada, but the Kids in the Hall's wig table is actually bigger than the province of Prince Edward Island. <laughs> All right. I, I, she's not in this film, but I would like to take just a few moments to dedicate to what I consider the funniest female comedian of all time, the Canadian Madeleine Kahn, if you will, Catherine O'Hara. Catherine O'Hara, always, always, always great. And ha- again, Everybody from SCTV, we know them from the sketches, but they all did improv, which is why Catherine O'Hara is in every single one of yeah. the Christopher Guest improvised, improvised oh, yeah. mockumentaries. She's most got people, the chops to do it. Yeah, most people will – I'm sure her biggest hit and her most memorable, noteworthy role is she is the mom who leaves Kevin home alone in the film I Left My Kid Home Alone. And she is great in that movie, but – she it's you know, it's a Hallmark card movie. She's not given a whole lot to do. She is venomously, scathingly punch you in the face funny in Christopher Guest's movies. Uh, and I, I mean, three dozen films where she just pops up as uh, best friend or mom or sidekick. And she's just the best. I love I say, fearless. Say, fearless another cast. reason that the SCTV cast uh, that I think they are such beasts when it comes to character comedy And it's something that I don't think a lot of sketch comedy shows did because they had the meta story that Mellonville was the small town and they were all working at the station and they're all doing shows. You have stuff like the guy that is on the news also being the weekend horror host and you have characters within characters. So when they would do like Johnny LaRue would do a production of Ben-Hur and then cast it with other characters from SCTV and then they're playing their roles within that, that that layer upon layer of character humor that they would do talk about a workout and they did it every week and they would do it with 15 different characters each. I mean, they're just animals. Catherine O'Hara is a brilliantly funny Beetlejuice alone. If you just watch what she does with wardrobe in that movie, there's she's, insanely I, I funny after i think after hours we we already covered uh rock and roll and she had a little part in nothing personal but uh her breakout as far as uh, being a real actor and not just not not just an, a comedic actor on a sketch show was after hours that's where she you know i was like oh that's the woman from wow she's really a good actor not just a comic so there uh we'll get into catherine o'hara excessively on this podcast but right now Let's head back to Strange Brew. What's afoot at the Elsinore Brewery? Uh, everything is starting to melt down. Uh, Von Zydo is starting to see evidence of uh, the ghost. It's bouncing around the lab and stuff. So, yeah, we're getting there. It's there heading some, into Act 3 now. There are some fairly solid opticals in this film, from yeah. the glowing plug to the bouncing ghost. Um, the thing I have to mention is that a lot of this uh, plot revolves around Oktoberfest. <laughs> and, again... Uh, fortunately, uh, where they were shooting Strange Brew is about an hour and a half down the road from Kitchener-Waterloo, which used to be just Kitchener, and before the war was New Berlin. Uh, And then with the war, let's not talk about the war, uh, (laughs) it became Kitchener and then Kitchener-Waterloo. But that is actually the site of one of the largest Oktoberfests in North America due to that incredibly committed 
you know, German heritage and tradition of a people who wound up there. So, so again, what you're saying is there is a fierce Nazi presence in this part of Canada? No, actually <laughs> just the opposite. I'm what easy. I'm saying is that there's a tremendous amount of German and heritage, German heritage and enthusiasm for Oktoberfest beer and food, and you don't have to fake it. You can just drive to it. You know, well, you're, not, you're not going to be able think, to shoot it. Do you think that, there, that anti-Semitism is prevalent in Canada? Oh, yes. How so? Uh, if you ever go to Montreal, Montreal is like a rushing, Russian nesting doll of communities and hatreds. In oh, that my. Montreal is in Quebec, a French-speaking province in Canada, but it has an Anglophone community who are despised. Part of that Anglophone community is Jewish, who are, who are despised for being not only not French-speaking, but also not Catholic. And the Jews of Montreal, DGAF, they make the best deli food in the continental North oh, America. Oh, smoked meat in Montreal. This oh, my God. It blows my mind. I, didn't, I was being, like, mostly facetious because Canada is, like, notably one of the friendliest cities in the world, or countries in the world. And of course, there will always be some little small pockets of hatred. But I expected you to say, of course not. We import Jews weekly. Uh, first of all, I'm not sure about the current intake numbers. But I mean, <laughs> people always say, oh, Canada is so much better than the U.S. You don't have many of our problems. Canada has many of the problems the United States has. It's just quieter about them and less armed, you know? Like, uh, there has been a serious tradition of anti Semitism in both French Canada and English Canada. We, Canada has poverty. Canada has hate groups that just tends to be a little bit quieter, you know? And, and you know, even if there were a Canadian hate group, it would have one ten, hundredth of the size of any equivalent American uh, one tenth right. the size of and, any equivalent uh, American and virtually group. None, and virtually none of the weapons. And how did we get into this? I was just being... Let, let's get let's get off this. We're getting well, heavy. No, I feel like, you know, a legitimate discussion of, you know, what Canada is as a culture is part of understanding its comedy. It's always going to have that little bit of imposter syndrome and it's always going to be trapped between American and British cultural influences. Right. And, and I think like what Drew was saying earlier is that like guys uh, like two two awkward buddies who don't have much to do on the weekend, but drink beer and joke around with each other. That's not certainly not exclusive to Canada, America, UK. That's that's universal, and and I think that to to bring it back to the movie is why Bob and Doug McKenzie and Wayne and Garth and all you know even going back to Abbott and Costello. Does being American have anything to do with being not really? You can watch the Abbott and Costello in any country and get the jokes. I think we connect to the universal, but we laugh at the specific, and that's what they do so well here. Like I I love the. I, I love the wardrobe in this movie. I love the uh, the very specific Canadian uh, look of this courtroom scene that we're watching right now cracks me up. By the way, when did Von Zydo's teeth get bigger in the movie? I don't know. <laughs> did I miss it at the beginning? Because they're gigantic by this point in the film. But if you drew look at the judge on his right is the queen and on his left is Pierre Elliott Trudeau, Justin Trudeau's father. So you can get a little glimpse back into the political history nice. of Canada. Another side note, uh, Mackenzie brothers themselves are named for William Lyon Mackenzie King, who's one of the greatest of all time prime ministers in Canada. Four terms, oversaw all of World War II. So the Mackenzie brothers are like if you had an American duo of, of hillbillies called 
or uh, you a- know Abraham uh, Roosevelt's. Abraham Ver- Washington, the Roosevelt's or the Hoover's yeah. or, you know, yeah. no, I like yeah. mine. I like Abraham Washington. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. But again, ignored on my own podcast. How dare you people? How dare you? No, I want to know, Drew, I, I wanted to get to this before we go, before we wrap everything up. James, can you off the top of your head, think of either, either Canadian or American films that do Canada humor wrong? Oh, yeah. I can think of a lot. Michael Moore's Canadian Bacon uh, is dreadfully off about the nature and character of Canadian comedy. Is that maple face? Do you just do you find it just? Yeah, I find it, you know, when they're when they put on donut face, when they put on maple face. And I think that part could be played by a Canadian. I, I call it I call it going antler head. Thank you. Yes. Uh, phone 80 and it's a serious problem again. Right. Like the thing. Often I'll talk to people casually about growing up in Canada and they'll say, could you take me for a great Canadian meal? And what I say is, look, if we were in Toronto, I couldn't take you for a great Canadian meal. Like, what is that? It's served while you're on a snowmobile. But in Toronto, I could find you a great Greek meal, a great German meal, a great Vietnamese meal, a great Chinese meal, a great French Canadian meal. Yeah, that's what I love about Philly is that we have our cheesesteak. But beyond that, it's a huge, it's a multi, multicultural city. Like you could find good cuisine of any stripe in Philadelphia. And I'm I'm, sure you can in Toronto. Well, in Toronto, bear in mind, 50% of the residents of Toronto weren't even born in Canada, never mind Ontario. It's a huge nexus for immigration. It's a great city. I've been there several times for the festival, and I won't even tell the story about the time Drew and I got busted smoking weed in a fucking park, and the cop was just like, put it away and go back to your hotel room. And we were like, thank you, thank you. That was it. That was all that happened. I'm not even going to tell that story. But you just did. Again... Again, you know, it's like the joke is, you know, there's a phrase as American as apple pie and the Globe and Mail, Canada's one of Canada's more prominent newspapers, did a contest to say what's the Canadian equivalent? What's the Canadian equivalent of as American as apple pie? And the winner, which was also right, was the great phrase as Canadian as possible under the circumstances. There's... (laughs) There's always that element of restraint or like situational awareness or not. I would have said maple syrup. I would. I mean, it's delicious. Everyone loves it. And I bet you it goes good on apple pie on top. See, geographically, it fits maple syrup on top of apple pie. No, you are. You are quite right that that would be delicious. But I just love the specificity of that joke. It's up there with the other Canadian (laughs) joke. I know. How do you get a bunch of drunk Canadians out of your swimming pool? You say. You say, pardon me, would you drunk Canadians mind terribly getting out of my swimming pool briefly? I mean, that's the joke. The joke is that there's no joke. It's just a series of people nodding politely. If that's your worst cliche, like, no, you know, cliches are generally either insults or backhanded kind of mild, affectionate insults. But if the biggest cliche of your country is they're really friendly and they try to help you out when they need to, when you if they can, they're they're very, you know, they're gracious to strangers. Uh Oh, Oh, <laughs> by the way, I this um, I, I wonder, James, in Canada, is it is it normal to have mental hospitals directly next door to breweries? No, although uh, there are breweries everywhere, which is visually great and be uh, comforting because whenever you're near a brewery, you know, when you leave out a thing of like checks overnight and it just has that nice. Oh, I know the brewery smell. smell. Yes. 
everywhere you go in Canada, you smell that. Like I'm sure they shot at the Molson Brewing Facility uh, between Hamilton and Toronto. And if they didn't, they could have shot at the big one in London or they could have shot at the one in Guelph. Every major city has like one brewing location and it is super ubiquitous. The other, the, the other ubiquitous liquor thing in Canada is rye, which is, of course, whiskey made from uh, rye, <laughs> of course. But interestingly enough, did you know that bourbon is like champagne and Kalamata olives? It's a, uh, a domain of appellation. You can't call whiskey bourbon unless it comes from certain, uh, certain counties in Kentucky. So you can't call Canadian rye whiskey bourbon. It's oh, just it's rye. just rye. Okay. Yeah. If somebody tries to sell you uh, bourbon that isn't from Kentucky, you just They're punch them. They're a liar. Them. Yeah. You just punch them in the face. Drew, uh, I, like I mean, uh, James, I came across a fun trivia question that you already covered. Which Canadian chain first opened in Hamilton in 1964? Tim Hortons. And again, if you watch, uh, if you watch Wayne's World, they're always eating Stan Makita's donuts. Stan Makita being a famous Detroit Red Wings player, because as an act of cultural treason, the Wayne's World movie is set in Michigan and not Canada. Which is Where? bizarre. Yeah, bizarre. It feels. Where? Oh, I'm sorry. Sorry. Where is Canada's most visited national historic site? What's sad is I could say a lot about I could say a lot of those because part of me thinks it could be in Halifax, which were Halifax, uh, Nova Scotia, is the home of the oldest uh, African slash Canadian or American settlements in North America, thanks to the fact it was a terminus of the Underground Railroad. Yeah, and that free African Americans would get set up there, and hence Halifax has. Uh, older African-American settlements than almost anywhere else in North America. I would suggest that. I might also say Royal York. Or mm, you, were York closer, you, were, you were closer the first time. Halifax something. Was it the Halifax uh, Harbor? or Halifax? Oh, the Citadel, which is a military encampment. Uh, yeah. And also Halifax is also wiped out by a harbor explosion in the early 1900s as well. Halifax is a really interesting city. Uh, it has... African Canadian settlements. It was wiped out by an explosion. It's a huge harbor. And briefly in the 90s, it was the Canadian Seattle springing off more bands than you can shake a stick at, none of which were Nickelback, and thank God. What is your favorite fact about Canada that most Americans don't know? Oh boy. Um, I think it would have to be the fact of the matter is that when you're paying taxes in Canada, they go a little bit further towards peace, order, and good government because A, Canada believes in that, and B, Canada lacks a nuclear weapons arsenal. So all of the money you spend as a Canadian taxpayer goes into social services. Some of it That's does just because you're, you're, you're just – you're just you're like hang, you're just coattailing off our nuclear arsenal. That's all. So you don't have to spend yes, money on your own. And empirically threatened by it as well. So that works out terrific. Again, the shortest route for an American or Russian nuclear weapon is through Canada. So our odds are pretty bad regardless. You can actually tour near Ottawa. You can tour the 1960s era Cold War bunker that was made as the Canadian Command Center in the event the ball went up. As it was built by the Prime Minister Diefenbaker, it is of course known as the Diefen Bunker, and you can tour it to this day. I would just like to point out that Von Zito's hair in this scene is awesome. Yep. And it looks sculpted onto his skull. It is a really crazy cut. 
Um, one of the things that I like about Bob and Doug McKenzie in the film, and it is a school of comedy that I, I think makes a film feel silly and safe, no matter how weird it gets, is they're indestructible in this movie. There is nothing you can do to these guys that is going to harm them. And that goes back to like yeah. that Three Stooges school of slapstick where it's like they can be funny. Yeah, they can beat the shit out of each other. They can sit in the uh, they can do the electroshock therapy stuff like, you know, they're not really going to ever get hurt. And to some degree, that just allows you to do almost anything at that point. And again, the fact that I think having Mel Blanc's voice is a nice little subtle nod to that. You're yeah. not in a real world. It is in a world of comedy. I just said comedy instead of comedy, and I don't know why. I was waiting for you to correct yourself. James, what would you say are the best Canadian horror films to ever come out of Canada? Ooh, uh, a really lesser known one called Peau Blanche, White Skin, which, again, you know, it, it's set in Montreal. It's very much a Montreal film. Two men go out. One of them is African-Canadian. One of them is white. They purchase some temporary company one of the girls slashes at the neck of one of the clients with a razor. He's horribly wounded, and he says the crime was committed by racist skinheads. So the neighborhood goes into a flurry of activism just as he and his friend realize that the pale, red-haired young ladies they temporarily purchased a companionship of are actually this off-Canadian species of vampire. Oh, snap. I have not seen that. I have heard mention of it before, but I've not seen it. I thought you were going to go like Videodrome. Drew, what do uh, you got? I'm doing – well, I'm doing the deep cuts here. No, no. Yeah. I want the deep cuts. Drew, you got one? Um, well, look, I, I I would rather hear recommendations from James because my yeah, mine are yeah. the typical like I – Yeah, yeah. The Boogins. Drew loves the Boogins. I'm not a Boogins fan. Don't you remember? It's not, it's not Canadian. Me. I always thought it was. How about this, Scott? I'll give you one more great psychological thriller from Canada that you've never seen, but that again uh, works because it, it's Canadian. Is it from 1987? Is it A Man in Uniform? Oh, no. I thought you were going to say something else. Nope. Never seen that. Uh, so, again, here's the joke. A Man in Uniform is about a guy who gets hired to play a cop in a shot in Canada TV show. But he's a method extra. So he takes his uniform home and he wears oh. it and he wears it when he walks around uh, the town. It's actually called A Man in Uniform. It stars the late great actor Tom McCamus as the guy who goes too deep into his role. Great 80s character actor Kevin Teague is in it or Kevin oh, Ty. Yeah. I think it's Ty, but yeah, he's great. But the great thing is that Kevin Ty plays a real cop. And so when Tom McCamus's character running around in his silly outfit, uh, running around in his costume, bumps into a real cop making a real arrest, he says his line from the show, which is, do you want me to read him his rights? And Kevin Ty says, you watch too much TV, kid, which is funny because, A, that's such a cliche line, and B, you don't get read your Miranda rights in Canada. You get read section, I believe, 34 of the Canada Criminal Code. So that film, A Man in Uniform, 1993, is just a great lesser-known Canadian psychological thriller where everything goes wrong. It's I think, so, uh, I think part the, of the chain. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You go. I think part of what I what I liked about Canadian, if we're talking about like flavors of stuff, what I liked about Canadian thrillers or Canadian comedy um, or Canadian uh, horror was that it was chillier and stranger. And I think part of that is budgetary. There's this feeling that 
you know, only David Cronenberg would shoot the end of the world for a dollar thirty eight and shoot it by pointing into one shower stall. And like, that's how he shoots the apocalypse. And I think there is endless invention when you force people to do that. One of the thrillers that made a mark on me when I was a kid, because I saw it on late night cable and knew nothing about it going in. I believe it was a Toronto film. Correct me if I'm wrong, James, but the silent partner. Oh, the silent partner with Christopher Plummer. And I believe it's Elliot Gould, right? Yep. And man, that thing messed me up as a kid. And for a thriller, it is a wicked effective horror ride. Primarily because you have creepy eyeshadow wearing bisexual Christopher Plummer in it as a yeah. bad guy. He's um, just always been like just a five star. Like you, most people think Christopher Plummer, they think, oh, I watched The Sound of Music every year when I was a kid. But even to this day, the guy is just, he's always, he's. Like he's like a hackman. He's like a Pacino. He's never weak. He's never not good. Although Pacino is sometimes not good. I am going to mention one final Canadian, more modern Canadian horror film for your listeners, Scott, just because it is such a great piece of work. And also, is it, is it American Mary? No, it is not. It is, okay. in fact, Pontypool, directed by oh. McDonald. Yeah, Pontypool like is one. a zombie film where the virus transmission mode is language. And it takes place in a radio station who are unwittingly a transmission vector. And there's a very funny, very Canadian bit in it where uh, you have helicopters going ahead with people shouting in French, turn off your radios, turn off your televisions, because the zombie virus doesn't work in anything other than English. That film stars Stephen McCaddy, who you'll recognize from everything. Oh, yeah. Watchmen, fantastic, the fountain, fantastic character actor. It's a lead for him, and he's terrific in it. If you have never seen Pontypool, and you're looking for a very distinct, different take on the sort of, you know, mid-2000s uh, uh, zombie boom, Pontypool is a really great film inside that. Throwing in just a few more good Canadian horror films before I turn it over to Drew. Uh, the Changeling, 1980. That's yep. a good one. George uh, C. Scott. Yep. Yep. I did mention American Mary, which I like very much. Uh, the original My Bloody Valentine. Uh, there's a, a really strange Canadian horror film from the 80s called Pin. Uh, oh, that I like. Yep. Pin had one of a. If you have a copy of Grady Hendrix's great book, uh, Paperbacks from Hell, there's a great. lot of great stuff about Pin in that and how creepily it went to the screen. Drew and I just covered a Canadian horror film called Deadly Eyes. They're watching you. Making your dreams come true? Cube by the fantastic Canadian filmmaker Vincenzo Natale. The, not only a. Uh, Cube may not be a great film, but it's a great example of how to work within your constraints. And it has that great opener and it has an economy built into it that, you know, would make, um, you know, Roger Corman applaud and squeal in glee. It's mm. it's a ferociously smart example of how to get the most out of very little. And, yeah, I love indie films like that. Okay, Strange Brew, they've uh, they've killed Monsanto now, and uh, they are rescuing um, Doug from the uh, uh, tank. And this has always been one of my favorite gags in the movie. And, boy, you want to talk about abandoning reality. It's just yes. going for the joke. Oh, my God. Do you think these guys – I mean, it seems obvious to me, but – and I mean this as a compliment. Do you think that they're clearly with their narrative inspired by Monty Python's films of just no rules? 
I'm not sure if it's no rules or just kind of, again, it's hard to enjoy a comedy once a certain number of bodies are on the floor. I mean, something like Clue is very different from, you know, something where a lot of people get wiped out. And I think very bad things. Yeah. You have to keep everybody agreeably, you know, not injured, you know, to make sure it's funny. If, if, if Bob McKenzie drowns in beer, that's not funny. If yeah. Bob McKenzie drinks all the beer and then puts out yeah, a fire with his own micturation, hilarity. Hey, watch your mouth, dude. Oh, my God. The staging on this. Um, and the other uh, that's uh, it is a tough thing for seasoned comedy filmmakers to get right. That sort of balance between reality and absurdity when you're doing a movie. And we've talked about this, Scott. There's a lot of stuff that came out post-Airplane where you can see that they're trying to do absurd and they have zero knack for how to shoot right. it or stage it. Or- you can't do Airplane style 40%. Yeah, like, you can do a cop movie and then have it be a straight comedy 40%, sure. But if you're going to do Airplane comedy, it has to be your whole movie. And, you know, I, I think Dave and Rick got it right with this. It's not clear. It's not exactly the same tone as an airplane style. No, but, they, far, but when but they, it, but when they go for the, the really weird it, and this gets weird, my God, we're watching a ghost right now, say goodbye to his daughter and put up the Oktoberfest. Like, right. like what the dog, do? when the dog takes off, it Oh, the me. dog rolling across the roof, Yeah, the dog rolling across the roof in reverse. That, is- that makes me laugh so hard. I don't know what to do with myself. That's ridiculous. <laughs> it really is brilliant. Yeah. It's so low. It's so like it's low tech, and that's oh, part of the so, joke. <laughs> it makes community theater look like a James Cameron production. Yes, yeah, but it's, it's the they're better special effects than the giant rat in um, Nightmares, right, Drew? Oh my God! Yeah, uh, Drew. Uh, what else did we cover for this month in 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 Canadian? Uh, we covered Happy Birthday to Me. Ye. Ah. that. That's Canadian. And Curtains, which actually stars uh, the lead actress from this. She's one of the girls in Curtains. Curtains. Um, yep. Uh, uh, no, there's there's a definite flavor. And, you know, it's funny because we talk, We just had Carrie Ricky on, James. Uh, yes, the great Philadelphia Inquirer. Uh, uh, it, it was so great. And she was she was wonderful. And, of course, she's a old school Cronenberg fan. So she talked about um, writing about his career as a contemporary, like as it was actually unfolding. And that there's an... I, I think only if you've been a film critic for a while can you kind of express this idea, and maybe only we would get it, but there is something really wonderful about being on board from somebody's early films and then writing about them as they kind of emerge and as you're watching their their filmmaking voice kind of crystallize. And there are certainly filmmakers I love that I got to do that with, but man – to have somebody like a David Cronenberg that you get to write about as he's figuring out who David Cronenberg is, what a treat. Again, I mean, I was – Canada is very lucky. There is an industry there. There is an infrastructure. You know, much as they say that every actor – every stage actor in New York can buy food because of guesting on Law & Order, every Canadian stage actor can afford rent in part because of shooting on things like – Strange Brew, or all the things that are shot in Canada for America. I think you mean I think you mean Arrow. Well, here's the thing: my older brother was a stage actor in Canada for a while, and he supplemented that with appearances in 
You know, he's in Chicago. You can see Lucy Liu kicking him in the stomach. Oh, he, nice. You can see his shoes in the first X-Men film. He's a shouting extra in Cinderella Man. And that was all while he was also doing Canadian stage work at night. So I think that, you know, Canada is a great place to shoot. It's also a great place to tell stories. And as long as we can maintain that balance of being of use to our good friends in America who want to shoot less expensively while also telling Canadian stories, anything from, you know, Orphan Black to Carol Shields's uh, uh, The Republic of Love to Michael Andache's novels. If you can bring those Canadian voices to life, it's perfectly fine if you want to <laughs> that the Hulk is fighting in New York and not Toronto. Right. So if I don't like the trailer park boys, uh, I got to suck it up because that helped pay for uh, antiviral by Brandon Cronenberg. Yep. And also if you don't like the trailer park boys, do keep an eye out for letter Kenny. It is funny, profane, obscene. It's like the 2018 self-aware version of Bob and Doug McKenzie. And it is fraught with Canadian accents and stereotypes while still being very funny to anybody who's ever known two friends with more beer than ambition. James, as we're wrapping up the film, I want to ask you this. For many years, this is this and SCTV were virtually everything I knew about Canada. If somebody were to say to you that uh, I'm 40 years old and virtually all I know about Canada growing up was, was Strange Brew, would that bother you or would that make you happy? You know, I'm sure that people in Denmark don't love being known for The Little Mermaid. Uh, if somebody if somebody know only knows Canada by way of SCTV and Strange Brew, they got some of our best, quite frankly. And the other thing is that nobody ever just knows Canada from that, because Canada is in the songs of Joni Mitchell, the songs of Neil Young, the writing of authors like Carol Shields, the writing of authors like, you know, the author of Arrival, I think the original story is Canadian. Don't you forget know? about, do not forget about what you Art. graced us, Justin Bieber, Celine Dion. Come on, dude. I think Ray Margaret Atwood right now is uh, maybe one of our great cultural critics at the moment. One of our great cultural critics, one of our great cultural, uh, t- uh, you know, they've adapted The Handmaid's Tale. They're adapting Oryx and Crake. They're pretty much going through her whole uh, bookography. But again, you know, if people just know Canada from SCTV and Bob and Doug, there are worse things our nation could put forward. And that's the other thing is that much as you know, much if you said to an American, oh, I love America, best rock and roll band in the world from America, Backstreet Boys, you would go, oh, no. You know, when people talk. <laughs> please the, let me share things with you, please. The Canadian bands that make it tend to be like Nickelback and Justin Bieber and Alanis Morissette. And Morissette. Rush. Ironically, the song from the Great White North album with Getty Lee singing oh, chorus is Getty Lee's highest charting single. That's hilarious. Yeah. yeah. And certainly was. Uh, now, James, did you ever hear the soundtrack album for this movie? Because uh, it's very, it's very much out of print. And it's very much, and it's a, to- it's not a totally different experience, but the album itself is its own comedy experiment. Like it begins with the mutants uh, movie, but then from there it becomes them commenting on their own film and there's, stuff that's about to make it. It's very fun. It's that because I had that on vinyl as a kid. Yeah. And I remember thinking this is a lot like the album to Holy Grail or live at the Hollywood Bowl, where they completely diverge from what's on the screen. And that, you know, I, I, I can't help but think that that is a 
an obvious inspiration to these. I wish that was in print. That's one if uh, uh, La La Land Records should get that one and put that out because it is really a treasure if you're a fan of these guys. Again, I remember, like every Canadian, being given my mandatory copy of the Bob and Doug comedy record. And that that comedy record was at number one for weeks, if not months. Mm Because, again, when your local boys do well, you want to help them in it. All right. Well, the dog has flown. They are, they are stealing the beer truck. The dog is saving Oktoberfest as we speak by devouring everything. Yep. And, and you know, it goes to one of the cardinal rules of filmmaking. If at the last minute you make a dog your hero, people will like your movie 30 years later. Again, uh, it's not the most ridiculous thing in the film. But, the, <laughs> but it's but, the cutest ridiculous thing in the film. Yeah. But it's certainly in the top 10 out of 100, to be sure. James, can and... you speak briefly? Can you speak briefly on Canadians' relationships with dogs? Because Canadian canine, I figure they're kind of related. You know, uh, the great thing is, is that uh, I can't really do anything for you there, Scott. I have no clue what you're talking about. It's really <laughs> lost. It's really gone on me. I can't. I can't spin that silk. I, I can't spin that straw into gold. I, okay? I, I was curious to see if you were going to pull a hammy trying to stretch to catch that one. Because wow. All right. Well, would uh, you say that in Canada, cats are more more popular than dogs? I would say that in Canada, with more rural communities, where you have that whole thing of oh, this dog is also a functioning part of my farm, you would see more of that, certainly. Let me tell you something. Cats function on farms. They, they, they keep other animals away from the grain because cats don't eat grain. They kill rodents that, get, that carry disease, and they're cute to pet. I'd like to point out that as the credits roll real quick, production illustrator Paul Chadwick went on to become the creator of an amazing comic series called Concrete. Concrete. Ah, one of the smartest, most brilliant, outside-of-the-box, quote-unquote, comic book superhero series ever. Which almost became What's a Peter Concrete? Concrete. It's about a guy who wakes up, and he's a giant – he's a uh, speechwriter, and he wakes up, and he's a giant concrete creature. It almost became a Peter Jackson, Fran Walsh film. They wrote a script for Disney, and Bill Murray was going to do the voice of the character. Oh, wow. I want to read it. That sounds good. But again, Concrete is very much in keeping with, with Bob and Doug. Concrete is about a slacker who finds himself invulnerable. Yep. And and does slack invulnerable things. Uh, I was I was impressed to see about Paul Chadwick as well. And even better, decades before Marvel, you do have an end credits tag on Strange Brew. Oh, I love I love that this thing is them talking for the entire closing credits. It starts as shaggy as it ends. There is a sense that they don't take the conventions of even how the film works with opening and closing titles seriously. I want to end this conversation and I want to ask Drew and and then uh, uh, James, why do you think this film failed to find an audience in America? Uh, Yeah, I'll take it first. I I think it was a film that this was a weird era from MGM. They were still reeling from sort of being kicked in the face over Heaven's Gate. They had very little operating capital, and it began a tradition that unfortunately I think has continued with them since, which is – They try to function like a studio. They don't have enough money to function like a studio. So everything they release fails, and it becomes this weird self-fulfilling cycle that they're in. So they 
could produce movies. They couldn't sell movies. This was an era where they were outsourcing everything. They were they made that Canon distribution deal, which is why we have all those insane Canon films that suddenly have the MGM line in front of them for a while. Um, they were they were limping, and I think they just didn't know how to get stuff open. Uh, I would say that again, the Bob and Dave joke works oh. better in terms of shots than it does as a whole bottle in one sitting. You know, the original Bob and Dave was two minutes long. It Bob and Doug. Bob and Doug. You're right. I'm sorry. <laughs> any 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 old time comedy fan has made that mistake before. Yeah, yeah, I know. Three, yep. two, um, million one. times. Bob and Doug work best in short, concentrated bursts. The original sketches were two minutes, and they were so banal and tedious. You know, that was like, oh, that's very funny. I think when you multiply a two-minute joke times 45, it may lack the spurs to prick the sides of its own intent. Yep. I think that maybe uh, American audiences just uh, didn't get the joke, didn't get the characters all that well. And I think that uh, Strange Brew was slightly ahead of its time. I believe that it is considered a comedy classic of the decade. And I want to thank, uh, of course, my co-host Drew, our producer Bob, and our wonderful friend and guest co-host, Mr. James Rocky. Thank you, James. Hey, Scott, Drew, thank you very kindly for having me. Can I just say one thing? Yeah. This is for all the listeners of 80s All Over out there who are paying into the Patreon like I do every month. Oh, thank you, sir. I want to say to those subscribers, thank you very kindly. This is a podcast I listen to on a regular basis because it's not about marketing or tie-in meals or ephemera or even the horrible heat of now. It is just about the pleasures of movies in contact context with two lively raconteurs who are affable and who never forget how much they love movies. If you are somebody who's paying to help make 80s all over happen as a listener of a pod, I have to say thank you so much because this community is bringing something really nice to life in an age that's too often obsessed with the shiny, the shallow, and the new. And to be able to journey through the 80s with two people as knowledgeable and as respectfully loving as Drew and Scott, that is its own pleasure, gentlemen. As an often frequent listener, I can't thank you enough for it, and I can't thank the Patreon subscribers enough for letting it happen. That's it. You're getting an hour-long hug the next time I see you. You're in trouble. Hold on. Keep going. I'm almost done. I'll keep going. <laughs> I will note that Drew and I have one of those great L.A. friendships where every four months you text each other and say, we should hang out and then see each other in a decade. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I don't, if you guys lived in proximity, if, if I live there, the three of us would see a movie and go to a late-night diner at least once a month. And if we didn't, I would make you feel so fucking guilty You'd have to do it. <laughs> Scott, right. I love, Scott, I love if I you guys. in proximity to you, yeah. I'd just be at your house constantly with a big tray to catch the pearls of wisdom that fall ever so innocently from your lips. Yep. And, oh, and, and we have another friend, a mutual friend coming up. Our next, I'm gonna I am, I'm gonna break that bubble right now. Maybe not our next one, but our in the near future, our next friend slash awesome film critic we're gonna be talking with is LA Times' own. Jen Yamato. Very nice. Very nice. Jen, of course, you know her from your, her work from the Daily Beast and her work now as part of the LA Times crew. A firm believer in fun, but also a firm believer in wondering where the fun comes from. I can't wait to listen to that episode, just as I can't wait to listen to every episode of 80s All Over. Here's your check. Check. <laughs>